When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. I am super excited to be talking to Sharon Pomeroy today about search and rescue horses. So we're neither talking dogs nor conservation, but I think y'all are going to really enjoy this conversation. Um, we're going to learn all about, you know, what we know and what we don't know about olfaction in horses, how you train horses to do search and rescue, you know, where this field may or may not be going. There's all sorts of really exciting stuff. And um, yeah, we're just going to dive right into it. We don't have any new reviews, nor did I have time to put together a science highlight. So Sharon, welcome to the podcast. You're the entire show today. Yeah. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm so good. I really, um, I, we were just talking right before I hit record that I've had to cut down to every other week and I really miss podcasting. I love doing this show so much. Um, yeah. So why don't we start out a little bit about with you, you know, who are you? What is your background? Tell us a little bit about your horses. Um, you know, just kind of lay the groundwork for us of, um, of who you are. Sure. Um, so my name is Sharon. I live on a, a 90 acre property in central Maine with my husband and my son who's six and two horses and 22 chickens and a dog. Um, I'm really lucky to have a property this size. Um, in this area, it's not that difficult, but um, it's definitely nice to have trails right on my own property. Um, I've been doing search and rescue for over 15 years now. Um, I'm on my second horse. I still have the first mm -hmm. one. Um, my first search and rescue horse is 27. So I expect he'll be around for another five years or so. And he's still rideable. Um, but he mostly focused on visual search and rescue. So he was my transportation. Um, and I would pay attention to what he might tell me about, but I didn't expect him to really have much to say other than mm -hmm. I don't think it's safe to walk here. So let's walk over here instead, which is mm -hmm. actually more valuable than you might think when you're trying to use your eyes for something else. Um, so his name is Zephyr. And then my newer horse, um, Kodak, is about ten years young, younger. They're both they're both unregistered mutts, basically. Yeah. Um, so I don't really know exactly how old either one of them is, but Kodak is about seventeen, um, and I've had him since twenty sixteen. Uh, he had no particular training. Neither one of these horses had any particular training when I got them, and they're completely different in personality. Um, from from one to the next but it, when i got kodak very shortly after i got him uh we started my my search and rescue team started training in equine air scent which was something that i had known about for about five years prior but we hadn't had the finances as a team to to go after it at all mm -hmm. um because the only trainer that we knew about was in minnesota and we're in maine um so 
it was fascinating. And I, I really wanted to get him into the state and we finally got him into the state and we hosted and it was mind blowing. It was, it was just absolutely eye opening as far as what, how underutilized horses really were in search yeah. and rescue. Um, and that we were just using them. I mean, we said they were our partners, but we really were just using them as transportation. We weren't really mm-hmm. paying attention to anything that they might be observing and trying to tell us about um, because we didn't know how. We thought yeah. we did, <laughs> but we didn't. <laughs> um, so that was really eye-opening. And that first two-day clinic, um, Kodak was was really nailing it. And I got really excited. There's a video actually of his first... Um, hidden search. And when I say hidden, I'm using air quotes because a human could tell that there was a person rolled up in the tarp in the field, but the horse is a horse. They don't, they don't know that they just see something. They don't realize it's a person. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just, it was really interesting to watch this one horse progress through. Um, and, and I learned so much and he taught me so much. It's just been, it's been really amazing in the last few years. Yeah, that's so cool. And yeah, I can also totally see how, you know, you're ending up using or you're starting out with just using horses as transportation. Um, And then, you know, yeah, if you're going to have these horses out there anyway, you might as well see if they can be helpful. Um, Yeah. So what do you know about kind of the history of using horses for searching for olfaction? I know we were talking that there's just really very little research on their olfactory capabilities, but maybe you can outline what we do and don't know for our listeners. Right. Um, I have not been able to find scientific data about how many, what do they call them? Scent receptacles receptors horses have as I mean they can tell you how many humans have and how many dogs have and probably how much a frog has but I haven't seen anything about how many scent receptors a horse has um but I will tell you that their sinus cavity runs the entire length of their head oh my god yeah and of course it's head torso (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and Kodak's head is bigger than it should be for his body like it's out of proportion to his body (laughs) oh my (laughs) Well, he's a, he turns out he's a draft cross. So he's like, (laughs) he's technically a pony, but his head is, it's, 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 he's very cute. Very cute. (laughs) He's he's really cute. Trust me. But, but yeah, he's, he's a little out of proportion, but anyway, um, so their, their sinuses run the entire length of their head. And since even before horses looked like today's horses, they were prey animals, they're responsible yeah. for finding their own safe food and water, avoiding predators, and you know keeping it themselves and their herd safe. So they're used to observing and communicating mm-hmm. to their herd um, about safety and about you know like physical safety and food safety. Um, so it's not something that's not something you have to teach them. That's the really cool part about it is. They already know that and they're already doing it. The biggest thing that you have to teach anybody is you have to teach the horse. And when I say horse, please just know that I mean equine. It could be a mule. I'm sure mules would be really good at this. I haven't seen it. Um, You have to teach the equine that when they smell this smell in this category, not necessarily a specific person, although they could do that. But when they smell this smell, it's their responsibility to take over and get there, take Mm -hmm. you there. Um, 
you have to teach the rider to recognize when the horse smells that smell and put their hand down and give over control. Yeah. And that is almost the harder part. I mean, it's definitely the harder part because the rider has to recognize it and they have to not second guess their horse and they have to, um, to just have blind faith really, because we can't see the scent and the scent as, as your folks know, does all kinds of weird things. So yeah, <laughs> like yeah. There can, so there's sometimes like no logic to it as far as I can tell. Even with all of the scent theory out there and you can read about it as much as you want, but you know, you, you still can't see it when it's happening. So I can like see what the sun is doing and see that I'm in a valley and like know that the wind is coming this way, but like that doesn't, it's not nuanced enough, like at least my understanding of it, especially on these big landscapes. Um, you know, it gives you it gives you a ballpark, um, but it's hard to predict. Um, and I think anyone who really thinks that they know exactly what's happening and can predict it perfectly in these big landscapes is probably um, overconfident in the same way that like uh, stock brokers who think that they know what the market is going to do um, <laughs> yeah. are overconfident. It's like, oh, okay, weather, yeah, you're, you're an expert. Yeah, you're an expert <laughs> for sure. Like, I, I believe you on that. And you're probably broadly right and mostly right most of the time. But so, okay, one of the things that I keep thinking about as you're talking is when I'm out working with my dogs, if my dogs catch odor, they are small <laughs> and they can just go barrel through the undergrowth and I don't necessarily have to go with them. So I can be like, yeah, yeah, buddy, you go check that out. I'm going to wait here. And if you find something, then you lie down and then I'll come, I'll, then I'll come do the data and give you, give you your ball. But you have to go with your horses. And I have not spent a ton of time in Maine, although <laughs> weirdly enough, I did a survival-based reality TV show in Northern Maine <laughs> a couple of years no, really? ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it is dense. I mean, it's so many teeny tiny trees everywhere. You nailed um, it. Yeah. How we do you have, do that as a two writer? Things, we have two things in Maine that we have a lot of, and that is trees and rocks. <laughs> um, so you actually nailed one of the reasons why we haven't made more progress here in Maine, and that is the trees. So that actually makes this whole thing way more complicated because most of our searches, whether it's air scent or whether it's visual, are on trails. So I assume you know what happens to scent when you're on a trail. It's, it's not pretty sometimes. Um, it can be very misleading on where the scent is coming from. Um, So for example, on a trail search, as you go down the trail, let's say it's a regular truck width trail. Like we get sent onto a lot of ATV trails and and old Mm -hmm. logging roads Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, As you search the trail, you have to weave back and forth, you know, not in such a way that you're annoying your horse by over steering, but in such a way that you're catching the scent from both sides and you have to duck, you have to duck into the woods now and then to check, to see if there's scent coming from in the trees. Um, but you, you nailed it. Absolutely. If the horse catches the scent, he's going to try to go after it, whether there's room for you or not. So (laughs) that's actually the biggest thing is when you get to the point where in training, you're working on what I would consider to be an inaccessible hide because it's not accessible from the side the horse catches the scent at. It may Mm -hmm. be accessible from the other side. Sure. Yeah. But the horse had, you have to trust the horse to know enough to say, 
this is the quadrant I need to get to. And then your horse has to trust you enough that when you say, we can't go in this way, but we're going to go around over here and try it, that Mm -hmm. they don't give up on you. That they don't say, well, I guess she doesn't believe me. I'm not going to tell her next time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why when we try to set up our searches in the beginning, it's very simple. It's in a field. There's as much of a straight line wind as we can manage, which is another thing that Maine does not have a lot of. It's straight line winds and fields. (laughs) No, (laughs) that's not what I think of when I think of Maine. (laughs) No, no, but we do our best. Um, And the horses are surprisingly good at being able to cut through what we would consider to be, you know, the nonsense and and get to it. Um, I did a trail search in the wintertime once and I set it up perfectly so that, and, and trust me, you can only do wintertime searches until a certain point because then the snow's so deep and it's got too many ice layers underneath and you're risking cutting up their legs and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I put my hider in a position where I thought I could stay on XYZ trail and they would be perfectly accessible and the wind would be blowing perfectly. Well, I headed out. And we went a little way down the trail. And instead of continuing straight down the trail, Kodak insists, he has quite an opinion. He insisted on making a hard right and then a hard left. And he approached the whole problem from the wrong side. And we couldn't get there from here. So I had to do that circle around deal. And then once I got him close enough, he was able to get the scent from the correct side. And and he, well, not from the correct side. It was still the wrong side, but he got the pooled scent. rather than the drifted scent. So it was still a win and it was a win for him, but it was one of those scenarios where it was like that, uh, that wasn't the way I set up the problem. Yeah. You were hoping to teach one lesson and it ended up being so much harder. Gosh, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time that happens in our mentoring group Mm. uh, to me and to our students, it's like, Oh man, that was really not supposed to be, that hard but you know the wind shifts the uh, cloud moves and then you've got direct sunlight somewhere you weren't expecting or you know uh, the dog or you know i guess in yeah the dog or in your case the horse yeah makes a decision about where they're going and it's like well because you chose to go that way around the building now this is right 20 times harder but we do have the benefit we do not to over talk you but um we do have the benefit of of the horse being so much taller and they can put their head up or down so now we have a range of like zero feet to seven feet that they can catch scent in yeah Mm -hmm. so um i mean i have pictures in our presentation that i shared with you of the same horse doing basically he can track or trail i'm not quite sure the difference i just know my horse (laughs) and if if he's got his nose to the ground and he's you know acting in a certain way, then I know he has scent and that's why his head is down and I'm going to let him have his head down. But there are other days when his head is like up like a giraffe and off we go. And he's like chugging along. Did you get a chance to watch any of the videos? Yeah, they were really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've never, I, so I've, I've rode a little bit of dressage for the couple of years that I lived in Montana and that's mm, the bulk of my horse experience. And it's just so, I mean, it feels like honestly not dissimilar to when I went from working in animal shelters where my job was trying to get dogs to not not hide from men uh, or bark at strangers or whatever. And then going out and working with 
detection dogs and getting to see dogs do what they're they're bred for out in you know these open spaces and like the difference between a dressage routine and what you're doing is a similar magnitude. It is so cool. And I think, you know, this is something we talked about during the pre-interview and that you hit on earlier that I really want to come back to is this point of control um, and the rider and the horse needing to go back and forth on who is, who's driving. And that's something we talk about all the time with our dogs, but I think, the dog world and the horse world have different opinions and and some of them are very real because you know when i'm not my dogs are not thousands or hundreds of pounds and i'm not on their back so if they make a decision that i disagree with it isn't likely to cause me a spinal injury versus <laughs> you know with your horse you know if your horse wants to you know drop their head and kick you off their back it's a totally different control conversation culturally. So how do you as a rider and maybe talking to other riders and how do you help the horses understand when it's okay for them to take the reins, I guess, um, for lack of a better term, because it's just, it's something that is so deeply ingrained in both the horse and the rider that that is not something that's generally permitted. And I mean, so the, again, my understanding of riding yeah. is like relatively surface level. So also correct me if I'm making overgeneralizations. No, no, it's fine. You're good. Um, so the, it, the first clue that the horse has that they are going to be given the opportunity to be in control is the gear that you use attack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, preferably when you are working an air scent horse, you are riding them with different headgear, different bridle or different bit or both. Um, and I'm using terms that are a little bit in, for non-horse people. Um, yeah. um, so the minute I put his bridle on, he knows whether he's going to be working today or not just based on what's in his mouth. Additionally, when you are working scent and they get the scent and you've figured out that they got the scent, you rest your hand on their, their bottom of their neck, their withers right in front of the saddle. So you've, you've got the pressure of your hand with the reins on their withers. And that does two things. That makes it so that they can feel your hand, the weight of your hand mm-hmm. on the withers. And it also makes it so that if you want to take control back, it keeps you honest because you actually have to pick your hand up. Oh, so I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the things that our trainer complains about when, and even last summer when I was riding for him was you're fiddling with your reins, you're fiddling with your reins. And it's just a habit. Like when you mm-hmm. have ridden, especially people who don't ride Western with the loose droopy reins, yeah, it's just habit to like fiddle with the head. And so he can see the rain moving and, and we'll be like, no, I wasn't fiddling. And he'll say, you watch that video back later. Yeah, You were yeah. fiddling. <laughs> so, so that's how the horse knows is the combination of hopefully a different headgear um, tack bit. Um, and also your hand on the reins uh, on the wither in that moment when you say, yes, I recognize you've told me that you have sense. So I'm putting my hand down mm-hmm. and now you can take over now. Then you've got horses like Kodak who are extremely opinionated. And this was actually a real training challenge for me that because I don't have a trainer that I work with regularly who's local, I let get out of control. 
Kodak had developed a habit where he tries to double back. And I don't know whether it started with when we're out on a regular ride, he wants to go back to the barn because that's where his buddy is. Or Mm -hmm. if it started with us doing too many blind searches and training because blind Mm -hmm. searches are fun, but you don't know if you've gone past the scent and therefore the horse turning around, you don't know if they're going back to get the scent or if they just want to go back to the barn. Cause I do a lot of my training in my neighborhood because it's a horse and horse trailering, especially right now. It's so expensive. And like I said, I live on 90 acres. There's, there's, you might as well do it up and down my road. Yeah. That's why you bought the 90 acres. I assume (laughs) it's been in my husband, it's been in my husband's family since the fifties. Awesome. But, uh, so I didn't realize that that was happening and let that get out of control. So now I have to really still work through that with him where we're out on a pleasure ride and I don't, I can't let him turn around to go back Mm -hmm. to the barn anyway, because I don't want to go back to the barn. So we don't allow that. But if we're on a search, did he go past the scent and he needs to go back and get the scent or is it something else? So that is where trusting your horse has to come into play. Um, I was actually attempting to certify on my daytime trail test and I screwed that one up. Uh He, he was, we're just all over the place. I hope that's okay. Oh, no, that's okay. No, this is, this is fascinating. This is very, this podcast is usually pretty conversational. Okay. So we set out from where the, the evaluators are standing because the, the evaluators can't go with us. Mm -hmm. They can't go with us like a dog test. They go with you. Think about that for a second. Wait, why can't Um, they go with you? Well, what are they going to do? Are they going to run? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Make them run. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we actually went through all of this. They can't ride a bike because Uh a lot of the places where we might go, you wouldn't want to bring a bike. Can't ride an ATV. Same reason. Plus it's super loud and distracting. Yeah. Can't do it. Yeah. Can't do a drone because loud and distracting plus line of sight plus how, I mean, this right. is a three mile trail. Yeah. Um, can't walk cause we don't want them to have to run. Yeah. Can't ride another horse because horses naturally air scent and you don't want the team that's being tested to be clued in by the horse behind them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. So it's just, blind. yeah, which I think, you know, so the funny thing in conservation dogs is we don't really have a certification of any sort, but okay. my understanding is that in some other professional detection dog realms, the certification is that basically you would like go into a stadium or a room or whatever, and you come back out and you said, this is how many I found. This is, this is where they were. And then you're told whether or not you're correct afterwards. So I don't think that's totally unheard of in the detection dog world, um, but it's not typically how I would envision a te- an, an exam certification going. Right. So part of our struggle in trying to develop, and I guess I didn't say this earlier, but um, the state of Maine has been working to develop the first known air scent certification standard for horses that that we've ever heard of that's like for a regional or um, any kind of volunteer search and rescue organization. We have a standard. It's been revised once. We haven't released it because we haven't been able to successfully 
test against it. Like nobody has passed all three tests yet. Um, but the challenge has been, all right, so the field test is easy. The evaluators can stand at the side of the field and watch. Great. Found it, didn't find it. But the, the daylight trail test and the night trail test are real challenges because they want to be able to see, um, we want live tracking of a GPS where we can see on a screen, there's where the hider or hiders are. And this is where the animal is, the rider. Um, mm-hmm. And what am I hearing on the radio at that time that leads me to believe that they do or don't know what they're doing? So we've got radio comms and we've got ideally GPS tracking live, but that we, that part we haven't quite figured out yet. And um, we try to do a helmet cam that can be watched later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have all this helmet cam footage. (laughs) So, um, so anyway, we're out on this trail test and it's in a completely new area. I've only been on this trail on ATV once um, when we were choosing the trail with the property owner and the evaluators are at the start of the trail and I go off and well, first of all, I won't go into details, but it was very stressful for me. I, <laughs> the level of stress that hit me when I started out was just unreal yeah. because the pressure to try and do this and to, to be successful was just immense. Um, it, yeah. To be, cause yeah. I would be the first. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was immense. So I'm all freaking out in my head and we go up the hill and we go around the hill and we go on the backside of the hill and we're on this like dirt road with ditches on both sides and there's like wet in there and everything. And he's reacting to the left. He's got the head swing going on. He's snorting. He's blowing. He's very intent on the left side. He's not focused on going down the trail. He's just left, left, left. And then we get to a, an intersection and he wants to go up that trail to the left. And then he wants to turn into the trees to the left. And he's just left, 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 all left. So I go back and I investigate and I get off and I tie him and I look both sides. Cause that's, that's one of the things you have to do is if the horse mm-hmm. is giving you signals in a certain area and it's inaccessible to you on horseback, which it was at this place, then you get off and you investigate. And that can be hard for the horse to figure out too, because they have yeah. the scent and they want to go find the yeah. person. <laughs> Although it's only much later in their training that they figure out that the human scent equals human equals treats. Mm-hmm. When they're first starting out, you have to have the hider get up really slowly because they have no idea there's a human there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Some of the near wrecks we had in the beginning was just, Oh no. It was wow. unbelievable. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, so I couldn't find the person. There was nothing. And we were right in the first half mile, I'd say of a three mile trail. So I was like really under the gun feeling like I had all this trail left to search and I I, I had a limited amount of time to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got back on and we kept going, but he was trying to turn around the whole remainder of the trail, like very insistent trying to turn. So we, we did a lot of ranging back and forth, but in the standard, it says you can't like range back too much. So I was trying to limit how far back I let him go. Well, long story short, um, in the end, we did not find the person and they were in that stretch, but they were before that point. Oh my gosh. They were like, yeah. So they were in the first like quarter mile. Well, they were like, remember I said, I went up the hill and around the hill and then uh-huh. onto that dirt. They were like right there. 
Oh my God. Yeah. But the scent was blowing up the, the scent was blowing up the trail and getting stuck in the water. And Mm -hmm. that's where he got it was in the water. Mm -hmm. So like it, the stress basically got to me. Yeah. And and if I had really been able to think he hasn't done this doubling back in a training forever. Yeah. Maybe I would have put two and two together and gone back further. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, yeah, the first time I had to do, again, we don't have certifications, but you know, a sign off in front of a couple bosses and project partners and everything. I like, I had like a hundred meter by hundred meter square and I swear to God, it took me like 45 minutes to clear it. Cause you know, it was like, they had like three targets that were all clustered in like the corner that I chose to start in, you know, and I like found all three and then just was like, you know, (laughs) just, I mean, the way that it gets to you and then, you know, and it happens every single time I've talked about it before on the show, when I go out on a new project and we're working with a different target species or heaven forbid, we've got a film crew with us or something, you know, until we find that first target, I am just like a sweating stressed. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many times I've done it. And every time the dogs and I come out fine and we have the benefit, unlike you, of you know, our average day in the field, we're finding, 5, 10, 20, 30 targets in a day. So I get to get over that (laughs) hypothetically in a way that you just don't. I mean, gosh, I feel for search and rescue people. It is so much harder. I mean, yeah, we're not going to compare it, but like that particular aspect would, would break me. (laughs) You can't, you can't guarantee a find. Yeah. On a, on a search. Yeah. That's, that's, that's 100% true. Well, and I, we can't talk to search and rescue people who, you know, you can go years and years, you know, you could go a whole career and never have an operational find. And it says nothing about the quality of your training and your skill set and your horse or your dog or whatever. Absolutely. It's just, it's just the game. Yeah. The person wasn't where you were assigned to search. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that generally when I do an interview about search and rescue, whether it's ground or visual mounted or air set mounted is I love to say this. If we knew where the person was, we would just go rescue them. We wouldn't need to search. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The search piece (laughs) comes in where we have absolutely no idea. And therefore, all of the 100 people who went out are equally important as the one person or the one team who found the person. Mm -hmm. Because it's not that the other 99 were bad at searching. They didn't have the transect with the person on it. Exactly. So I I like to say... I have never had a find on a search, but I've never had a situation where I went out and searched and they found the person in my quadrant later. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the most important metric. Um, Yes. You don't want to be the person who missed the person. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's really bad. Um, Especially because are you doing live find? Uh, At the moment. Yeah. But if we can nail that. If we've, we've played around with the HR detection, um, Uh we have access because the dog team has access, um, to, you know, the scent source for those, but, um, the main warden service, um, SAR coordinator has told me that if we can nail the live find, um, training, the next Mm -hmm. thing he wants us to do is HR, because most of the searches in Maine, unfortunately, that we get called out onto, we're not really expecting to find a live person. 
Yeah. The good news is that from what we have been able to tell so far, our our horses react. Um, they absolutely react to HR scent. Um, they may react differently. Like we haven't actually trained them to seek it out, but naturally some horses will just really misbehave. Like they will act the worst that they have worked, uh, acted in six months when they smell it. Um, others will walk right up to it and try to eat the jar. (laughs) And, (laughs) and the third kind will avoid it like the devil. Like mm-hmm. they won't, they won't misbehave. They just won't go over there. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're just like anywhere, but there. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause when you, when you look at the tracks, you know, the GPS tracks afterward, if you're looking for HR scent and it was a mounted team that was in there. And every time the horse just kind of goes like this a little bit, you know, to look in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I've heard the same thing about not just HR dogs, but actually a couple, um, I don't know if it's just wolves that people have seen this with or just kind of apex predators. Some some dogs will have a similar response to the scat of again, I can't, I'm not for sure if it's just wolves or if people have seen the same thing with like you know, again these other apex predators where dogs are like, "Eh, actually, I'm not I'm not interested in going up to that guy." Yeah. Um uh yeah, and obviously people do successfully train dogs and horses to find these things anyway, but you do have some amount of personality that comes into it. So I want to go back to, you know, way back when you were talking about kind of this, this interplay between control between the rider and the horse, how I understand once the horse kind of understands the job and the rider understands how to read the horse, how that's done. But in a really early training, you know, the first time that the, the horse is being exposed to that odor, do you do this, you know, do you start as groundwork so that the horse learns how to do this freely and then you do it with someone on their back but without holding reins? Like, how do you kind of build up to the horse understanding that they can make the choice to go towards that odor even if they've got sure. a bit in their mouth? Because it seems like so, something that a horse has spent years being trained not to do to, that. Yeah, not to take over, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, not to make their own choices. So I... I I'm going to be a little bit deliberately vague because our trainer has asked us to not be incredibly specific. Um, but I will say this, uh, the, the trainer's name is Terry Nowacki, N-O-W-A-C-K-I. Not entirely certain how to pronounce his last name, but I think I'm close. He never says it to me. So, um, And if you are interested in learning more about him or about his training methods, he, he talks a a little bit about it. Um, he is the founder of the American equine scenting association and his website is airscentinghorse.com. We might need to double check that because I haven't been there in a while, but I'm pretty sure it's airscentinghorse.com. Yeah, Um, I just pulled it up. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, and so he does in, he has a little booklet that he sells, um, that, that teaches the method. Um, and in that booklet, he does recommend starting on the ground. Now he started us at a two day clinic, so he didn't have the time to do that with us. So we started right from the horse's back and it starts with runaways. It starts with the horse watching the person who's carrying the bucket and they, they run away and then they stand there and the horse goes up to them and uh-huh. they eat the treats. And then 
it's a longer runaway and they duck behind something and it just, it's a progression just like it would be for dogs. Um, it's definitely a, a fast progression because the horses learn the game really fast and you don't want them to get super bored. Um, so you might only do three or four runaways with one horse and then turn them loose into a small field, like that first search that you saw Kodak doing with the person in the tarp. And if you watched that, you see right at the end, the video cut off and he was spooking. Mm. He was in the middle of spooking away from the person who was in the tarp, just about to stand up. Um, so it's, it's that progression yeah. where, um, you might even just have somebody, you know, literally laying in a low part of a field and the horse quote unquote finds them. Well, like I said, horses don't necessarily recognize humans for human scent. And the mm -hmm. other thing they don't recognize is, and you've ridden a horse, but it sounds like mostly in an arena. So you may not yeah, recognize mostly. this. A human holding an umbrella is not a human until they talk. Yeah. A human on a bicycle is not a human until they talk. They're just, I, I don't, I do not want to say horses are not smart because they are. They just don't draw the connections that we yeah. expect them to draw. So they have an entirely different like sensory yeah. and evolutionary world that like to us and like our primate brain is like, well, that seems dumb. If we had to navigate, you know, savannas as a prey animal, we would do a lot of really, really dumb things from yeah. their evolutionary and sensory perspective. You know, that's... Yes. I'm certain we would die. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I would, I would be eaten immediately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you progress like that. But then as you... As you start working beyond that point, you do small fields and then you do medium fields and then you do like somebody hidden in a different type of spot. And then you can do short trail searches and then you can do longer trail searches and then you can do inaccessible and you can do elevated and you can do night and you can do in the snow. It's just, it's really just fun to play with. And I would enjoy doing it even if I wasn't doing it for search and rescue purposes. In fact, there has been no. some discussion about trying to create like an air scent sport um, in different areas of the country <sighs> yeah. for horses. But it, like I said, there's a lot of things about being in Maine that are just kind of challenging that way. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I lived in Montana for years and I could see this being something that, I mean, I think some of the 3D complexity in Montana would be really challenging, but there are other parts of Montana where it seems like the terrain would be a little bit friendlier to this sort of thing. Um Really certainly be able to make a direct beeline but i mean even <laughs> right. there like you're picking up the scent from let's say a thousand feet away because that's not mm -hmm. unreal mm -hmm. especially in a field that is beyond reasonable <laughs> yeah. there's a fence in the way a barbed yeah. wire fence and there's no gate there yeah. so what are you going to do right like yeah. it's the same problem whether it's dense trees or a barbed mm -hmm. wire fence yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's, I mean, this is one of the things I was just talking to a potential collaborator for a project where we want to be working on a, a species that really likes really, really dense stands of forest. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, on one hand, you know, we try to select and train for dogs that are comfortable pushing through that brush, but there also is just a limit to, you know, the size of the dogs that we have and what they can push through. You know, I don't have a Jack Russell or a little Cocker Spaniel. I've got Border Collies, so they're obviously way smaller than a horse. But there's still limiting factors there. And then, you know, it doesn't do me any good if the dog can get into the center of a blackberry thicket 
and find a scat for me if I can't get in there to go verify it and reward the dog and collect it. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, it, it, that's a very real issue. So is there anything, um, you know, it sounds like a ton of this is the rider horse relationship and the training that needs to go into that. What can you say about kind of the selection of the horse? Is this something that you look for particularly bold or confident horses, you know, really hungry horses, you know, what are we looking for uh, <laughs> in a successful horse? Cause it sounds like both of yours are doing it successfully and you've, you said that they're quite different. Yeah, they're really different. Um, I do want to put a pin in that thought um, for one second, because it just occurred to me that I've spent a lot of time talking about the challenges of doing air scent in Maine and not so much about like why we even are trying to do this. Um, so in Maine, there is a lot of uninhabited area and horses are typically used to try and eliminate um, large portions of land like that have ATV trails and logging roads and whatever running through them um, and may not have houses in the area, which is all well and good. They can go 20 miles and the rider doesn't get tired. They can find their own food along the way. They can get you up higher so that you've got eight feet of height to look down into the ditches and over the underbrush. They're quiet. So they're not like an ATV, if you're driving an ATV down on a logging road, not only are you only like your head's four feet over the ground, so you can't see through that roadside underbrush, but also you can't hear if somebody's calling for help. Um, and so, you know, in a case like, and, and a lot of times people who are intentionally hiding wouldn't come out to a vehicle um, also. So horses are um, actually something that a lot of categories of people who might not normally come out to a searcher might come out to a horse and rider. It, it's possible, you know, in oh, some cases, children, some cases, mm -hmm. the elderly who have dementia. Um, in my understanding, some, some people who are on the autism spectrum um, might come out more readily to someone who was on a horse. Um, so a lot more approachable, um, especially yeah. than a dog. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't draw, you know, comparisons between horses and dogs really in any other area, but I will say that a lot of people are nervous to see a dog coming towards them. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people who are nervous about horses too. I won't, I won't say that. Totally. Not, but, yeah. Yeah. But you get my point. So that is why horses have been used in search and rescue for the last 20 years or more is because of all of those benefits. And we can carry a lot of equipment too. Like we carry enough for us and the horse for a 48 hour period. And we probably could still carry equipment on top of that if we needed to. Um, yeah. So, so all of those are the benefits to it. And then when you add in the idea of having a sensor attached to the front of this piece of transportation that can get you 20 miles into the woods, um, that's, that's just really, yeah. it's immense. It is immense. So that's why we're chasing it. That's why we're yeah. you know, trying to make the dream happen is because it would make that resource so much more effective. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, how neat. And yeah, there's, there's so much in there about, and this, you know, these, gosh, I'm babbling, but like, <laughs> These are some of the things we talk about with the dogs as well, as far as, you know, 
they're charismatic and they're outgoing and, you know, conservation dollars. Like I just had a reporter contact me last night about a project that we haven't even started yet because he wants to cover us. And he wouldn't do that if I was just going out on foot to go find these scats. But because I have a dog with me, he's excited. And, you know, I had to send him an email being like, do you want to do the interview before the project has happened or should we wait? (laughs) You know? Um, And, you know, and yeah, people do definitely have, I know some people who are terrified of horses. I had an ex who was very, very scared of horses. And also a lot of people are really scared of dogs. It totally depends. And it's nice to have, you know, it's nice to have the variety um, yeah, it's, it's called resource layering when you're in yeah. search and rescue. It's, you know, the, all the different ways that you can employ. Um, so you had asked a question that I'm happy yes. to circle back to. <laughs> yes. Um, so it really, there are, there's no breed. You're not looking for certain uh-huh. breed or you're not looking for a certain body type. Um, ideally it would be something that can move faster than two miles an hour. Um, we have had, um, full-blooded draft horses that successfully have done this, but if they're the type that, that walks two miles an hour, it can be incredibly frustrating for everyone involved. Um, It would just take a really long time to cover that ground. Um, So a decent walking pace, I would say is important, but they need to be naturally inquisitive and curious. They need to be um, sure-footed. They need to be smart. Um, They do need to be confident and bold and independent, but that's in partnership with their rider. Like it's almost more important, the relationship that they have with their rider than anything else. Um, I would not consider Kodak to be particularly bold or independent. Mm -hmm. It's, it's crazy for me to say that, but, and he's really good at his job, but, um, this is a horse who I consider extremely sensitive I have had him since 2016. It is now 2023. And I walk up to him with my saddle, with the saddle pad and he still spooks at it. Oh, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. He's, he's really something else. Um, But when I'm riding him, you know, he'll walk right up to something that I would have expected would cause great consternation. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's hard to predict. Um, And that's my younger horse. My older horse, Zephyr, is what I would consider to be about as bomb-proof as they come. We were out on a search once many years ago, and he literally came within inches of stepping on like a dead gopher or something. Like, he just didn't care. Yeah. Um, Oh, funny. And, yeah. But yet again, we had to use him this past summer. He's had no air scent training at all, but we had two air scent clinics last summer, and I had someone on our team who was in the ground division, but had horse experience and wanted to ride. And I said, but that's fine. You can use Zephyr. You know, if he doesn't keel over, you'll be fine. <laughs> well, he did so well with it that everyone looked at me and said, you're riding the wrong horse. Like this horse is naturally better at it than uh-huh. your horse that you've been bringing along for six years, which did not make me feel good, but <laughs> oh, yeah, well. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, it was like, it was a very proud mama moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a real double-edged <laughs> sword sort of compliment there. <laughs> yeah. But um, it was, it was very interesting for me to see that because these two horses are, are, could not really be more different in personality. Like Zephyr's the pocket pony that wants to be right on top of you and would mug you for a treat. And Kodak literally, even today, seven years after I got him, runs away from me in the field. Mm-hmm. 
Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy, yeah. So um, there's really no way of knowing. I will say this: the um, the ability to do this is baked into the horse's brain, and they're all good at it. If they weren't good mm-hmm. at it, they'd be dead by now because they would have eaten some kind of poisonous weed in their pasture, mm-hmm. and they'd be gone. So they're all good at it. It's a matter of how much does the horse enjoy the game of it. Yeah. Well, that sounds a lot like our dogs, you know, yeah. they're, yeah, uh, all dogs have that scenting capability. And there was a, there's that really funny, um, I think it was one of Dr. Nathan Hall's papers where he got, oh, I want to say it was pugs, greyhounds and German shepherds and had them do a, a detection acuity test, like a, a threshold, like parts per million sort of thing. And I'm, I'm, I I hope I'm getting this paper right enough as I'm explaining it, but long story short, none of the greyhounds finished it because they weren't motivated enough. None of them made it all the way through the test, um, which not a shocker, but the real shocker was pugs actually outperformed German shepherds on the test. And it's just a matter of, you know, we work with German shepherds and I don't, but a lot of people do in the detection world because a, a lot of our detection training comes from dual training, apprehension training, where the German Shepherds are really, um, you know, they're one of the top breeds for that. And B, you know, it's a, they're a, they're a big, powerful dog that can physically do a lot of what we need them to do. You know, quite frankly, it doesn't matter to me that a pug can smell just as well as a German Shepherd, or, you know, as in your case, maybe that a draft horse can do this just as well as a mule. If I need a sure footed horse, um, out in Montana, I'm going to take a mule over a draft horse every time, even if the draft horse actually can smell better or yes. swell the mule will deal loud. better with The mule will deal better with the heat. Speaking of which, uh-huh. I did mean to say earlier, one of the other benefits of um, using horses for air scenting, and as a dog person, you can correct me if I say anything wrong here because I mm-hmm. definitely don't know much about the dog world. If you are out... On a 95 degree day with 80% humidity, a horse is going to be able to air scent as well as if it was a cool day mm-hmm. because they don't pant. Yeah. They continue to breathe through their nose. And as they exert themselves or as they get hot, their nostrils just get bigger and they yeah. draw more air in. So on a single breath, a horse that's catching its breath is going to take in literally gallons of air. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And they can sort through all of that just as well when they're hot as when they're not. Um, Yeah. And then I think this is true of dogs too, um, but horses can also do it. The left nostril and the right nostril are separate. So that's Mm -hmm. one reason why the horse is swinging his head is because he's trying to figure out which direction it's coming from. And that helps them source the scent. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. All right. Well, I think we probably need to start wrapping up here. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about or favorite stories or things you wanted to circle back to and clarify um, before we, before we go here? I don't think I missed anything in here, but I do have kind of a fun story. Yeah. Well, let's go to that then. (laughs) All right. Um, So, we were talking about the different challenges that have come up in trying to develop this testing standard. Um, When I did my field search test, um, I actually didn't expect it was going to work because we had 20 mile an hour sustained winds and 
35 mile an hour gusts that day. And I had a 20 acre. It wasn't 20 acres of field. It was probably half grass, half chopped corn. The, it was on a top of a hill and then the top of the hill had trees on it. So it was a pretty complicated scent scenario happening. Um, and the wind was blowing, gusting so hard that it blew the tablet off the hood of the truck. And we, we got it done in 20 minutes. Um, which it, I thought that was pretty good. Um, and the only reason it took that long is because I was letting him take his time just because of the, the challenges in the scent. Um, and my night trail test, I did not complete that one because I, I lost radio comms. They lost my GPS dot on the map and bear tracks. Oh my gosh. Fresh bear tracks in the mud. So that did not fly. And I haven't tried that one again. Um, but, uh, the most fun I think we had was actually, um, in a training where we were in our, on my street, we have, um, a particular neighbor who's been really wonderful about letting us use her property. Actually, we have a ton of neighbors who've been really nice, but this one particular neighbor has a little pond. And Ooh. I said, Hey, Terry, you want to do something really fun? And the volunteers agreed. And we put somebody in the water. And so the, um, actually we were going to put somebody in the water and what he ended up doing is there was a little, a little high raised piece in the middle that had tall grass where you couldn't see anything. He had him swim across to that and then lay flat on that piece because a lot of times people are like, well, are they looking for the treat reward? Are they looking for the person? You know, what are they, Mm -hmm. what are they looking for? And then we had a second person that wasn't near the water and, um, so I was really happy with Kodak. We went through that problem first because I really wanted the challenge of not having a clue anywhere or even how many people there were and uh, skirted the outside. He found the first person that wasn't in the water and then he went right around and he found the person that was in the water. Oh, um, but cool. we had, we had another horse that had never done it before. And he, he left the starting line and in 13 seconds was headed towards the middle of that pond. Wow. So it just goes to show you know, it's just, it's natural. Yeah. That just seems like a hugely untapped resource. And again, you know, it's such a huge benefit as well. We talked about, you know, you could go 20 miles and then you can get off and you're still fresh and the horse can be carrying more supplies. Um, you know, there's just so many benefits for wilderness search and rescue to have equines as part of the team. Uh, you know, and yeah, you know, as you hinted at as well, and we talk about this all the time on the show, it's also not just the horse, you know, you're still out there using your eyes and looking for things and you've got a better vantage point because you're on the horse, you're covering more ground, you're fresher. Um, yeah, it just seems like there's a lot of really, really profound opportunities, um, to be able to continue doing this. So I really, I hope that we get to continue seeing more and more of this and that, um, yeah, that there's just more capacity for this because it a seems like a really cool way to get out and enjoy nature with your horse and b seems like it could really potentially help save some lives yeah i'd like that um i will put in a plug for our team because we are (laughs) looking to grow our grow our mounted division in particular um but we'll take ground searchers and mounted searchers 
Um, all of our mounted searches start as ground anyway. Yeah. It's just they happen to have a horse to bring along at the same time. Um, so the team name is Highlands with an S, Highlands Search and Rescue. We're based in uh, Penobscot and Piscataquis counties in Maine, but we search ser- statewide. Mm-hmm. Um, and our website is um, highlands-sar.org. So anybody who's interested in either donating to our efforts or joining or finding out more information is more than welcome to visit the website or our Facebook page, um, which is facebook.com slash Hisar H-I-S-A-R. Excellent. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you stole it from me. I was going to ask you where people can find you and how to support you. So thank you so much for doing that. You, you no read problem. the notes. Um, and I didn't wanna, see uh, any notes. I've just done this before. <laughs> yeah, 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 you have. yeah. I don't, I don't even have notes for this episode. We're, we're really, we're winging it today. Um, and for everyone at home, I hope this inspired you to get outside and be a canine conservationist or an equine search and rescuer, um, in whatever way suits, suits your passions and your skill set. Um, You can find our show notes, links to things we mentioned in the episode, um, other podcast episodes, merch, our store, you know, the, you know, the deal. All of that is at canineconservationists.org and we'll be back um, in uh, two weeks. So talk to you then. Bye. Thanks, Kayla.